Today we begin our six-week series, summer series, uh, on the Lord's Prayer. I don't know why it's called the Lord's Prayer. Jesus never prayed the prayer. It's more the disciples' prayer. But the disciples asked Jesus really of one thing. And I don't know if you were given the shot to ask Jesus to be an expert in any one area of your discipleship or spiritual formation. I wonder what you would pick. But for whatever reason, and we'll talk about that in a minute, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, would you teach us not just how to pray, because prayer is not a math equation, but will you teach us how to have the intimacy that you seem to have with our Heavenly Father? There's something different about you, right? Like when Peter is is annoying and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and it's hot and we've done a full day of ministry, Jesus, you seem to have like this quiet strength about you that, you know, people can be annoying, you have a long day of ministry, but yet you, you seem to be able to handle the ebb and flows of daily life. And, and we think, Jesus, that comes out of this intimate relationship, this transparent relationship that you have with our Heavenly Father. Would you, would you teach us how to pray? Uh, Americans uh, have often used, ever since like really in in the 90s, you hear this language a lot that I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And though while some people may not identify as Christian for whatever reason or go to a physical building that is a, a church or church service, people have a propensity and a desire to want to pray, especially when times get really, really hard. Searches for prayer have gone up over the last 16 months. I wonder why. In fact, uh, I I checked out some stats on on some websites, and I I came across these stats. The phrase, how to pray, receives about almost 132,000 searches every month in America. Other popular phrases include pray for strength, pray for healing, and pray for children. 55% of Americans say that they pray every day. At least in 2017, 74% of Americans prayed to God at least once a week. Now, is that the Christian? I I don't know. But that's what the stats actually tell us. And so when the disciples asked Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? It seems like they struck a nerve with a lot of people throughout the years of history. That while we may not be an expert in religion or theology or a sacred text, we all have this desire to connect with someone or something greater than ourselves. The question that the disciples asked reminds me of 1 Timothy 4.12. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. Timothy is a young guy. I'm actually older than Timothy by most historians' uh, accounts of the age of Timothy when he would have planted these churches in Ephesus. And this is some encouragement that Paul gave Timothy. He says, "Don't, uh, don't let anyone look down on you, Timothy, because you're young. Set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, love, faith, and purity. Now, I grew up in the church. I grew up in youth group. And a lot of this verse was hammered on like, students, you need to get involved in service in the church and, 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 the, and the worship band and you know serving coffee and donuts and all this stuff. And while that is true, because anyone can serve Jesus at any age. I think the weight of this text, and I could be wrong, is more on the, <laughs> the call to set an example for the believers, right? Now, when we think about setting an example, sometimes we think about we need to check ourselves because we have non-Christian friends at the office, non-Christian friends uh, at our middle school and high school, elementary school. We have non-Christian friends on the baseball team, basketball team, and soccer team that we're on. But Jesus isn't talking about setting an example for non-Christians. Jesus is telling 
us to set an example for other believers, the other people that are here in this room at RCC. And I think that's what prompted the disciples to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, you, you seem to have a thriving prayer life, so much so that I think we, we want that same kind of prayer life. Richard Foster, who's an expert, really wrote a ton of stuff on spiritual disciplines, says this, all who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. For me as a kid, prayer was like a, a food thing, and it was when my parents, you know, when we were really young, put us to bed sort of a thing. But prayer, since I've you know, gotten older and followed Jesus, and really st- I've never been really good at praying just because I'm not really good at sitting still and being silent. I like to have things that I can check off. Like I can read the Bible all day, every day, because a chapter is a chapter, right? But prayer is a different invitation. <laughs> and I love this notion that Foster says in his book on prayer, which is a phenomenal book, you should totally read it, that prayer is actually should be the business of every single day of our lives. Like I just, I just imagine the kind of prayer life that Jesus had. He would get up early, maybe trip over Peter, and Peter would wake up and look at Jesus, and that's that, that in-between stage of, I'm kind of waking up, but I really want to go back to bed, and Jesus kind of looking at Peter saying, hey, Peter, so, sorry, I, I need to go be with my father. And it was, prayer is something that I think for the disciples, and maybe for a lot of us, that it's caught more than it's taught. That, that another Christian, another believer that's probably um, older than us, not necessarily by age, but definitely by faith and maturity, has set that example, and it causes us to wonder. And, and I wonder if the disciples <clears throat> thought about Jesus' prayer life when people would come up to Jesus, and Jesus would say, I know that your kid is sick, and if I don't heal them, they're going to die, but I can't do that right now. I need to go be with the Father. Right? And yet so much in the church world and the, and the church dynamics that you're considered rude if you tell people no. And Jesus told people no, and they died. That's how important Jesus' prayer life was with his heavenly Father. There's also times in Jesus' public ministry that the disciples wanted to be his like PR agents, and uh, th- they would say, hey, Jesus, you're polling really well uh, in Capernaum or this part of Galilee. We need to go over there so that you can be well-received, i.e. so we can be more famous and people like us because we're insecure. And Jesus would say from time to time, no, I'm not going to do that. What do you mean? Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you want to grow in popularity, Right? Like, like if you're going to be well-received and, and you're going to preach sermons and you're going to get a big following and your church is going to grow and you're going to turn into a megachurch, Jesus, why wouldn't you want to do that? There's something about an intimacy in our prayer life that reminds us of our identity. Jesus knew what he was about. And he said no to really good things. But he always said yes to ultimate things. And so I think from that, Jesus, or the disciples asked Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. I want to encourage you to read it every single day. Grab a pen and a journal, however you want to engage with God, and, and read this prayer every morning and every evening. So here's a text we're going to be looking at for the next month and a half. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. If you want popularity, 
right? If you're all about likes on social media and it's not really a devotion until I take a photo of my coffee cup and my Bible and my devotional for Beth Moore and put it online, right? Like if you want that, Jesus says, fine, but that will be your reward. But when you pray, Jesus says, go into your room, close the door, right? And pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray, guys. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before Jesus jumps into what prayer is, he tells the disciples what prayer is not. Prayer is not a show. And what Jesus is referring to, and you'll read this in Luke and maybe other gospels of the religious leader and the poor tax collector. They're praying in front of the synagogue and the religious leader saying, God, thank you for not making me like this tax collector. And the tax collector knows his sin is deep and great and asks for God's mercy. Religious people who want a show would pray in front of the synagogues so that everyone could see how religious they are. Now, Jews in the first century, and even today, would pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. The afternoon time was when the streets would be filled. So if you want to show off your love for God, do it in the afternoon so everyone could see how humble and amazing you are. Jesus, don't do that. Your heavenly Father already knows what you need. Just pick a quiet place. And, and I think that's important, church. I think it's important that we have a sp physical space on our calendar that we know when I go here, it's time to be with Jesus, right? Especially in an age where we're addicted to technology. Maybe that's a room in your house. Maybe it's um, a park nearby. Maybe it's you going for a walk in your neighborhood, right? And leaving the family behind to fend for themselves. It, it is important to have a place where you know, when I go there, I go to meet with God. Prayer is not a show, and prayer is not babbling. So <laughs> prayer not being a show, Jesus goes after uh, the Israelites, God's chosen people. Stop showing off your religion to other people. Then he goes after the Gentiles, or what we would call the non-Christians. Jesus says, when you pray, don't babble. You ever been in those? You ever been in that Bible study, that small group where someone is saying like all those like uh, Asian words, propitiation, sanctification, all these big Bible words, and we go, "Yes, Becky, we know that you're intelligent." Stop. Jesus says, "You don't have to do that. Be honest. Be transparent. Be humble." The reason why, right? Remember, Jesus is ministering in occupied Roman territory. They believed in a lot of gods and a lot of goddesses. And what Jesus is saying is a very narrow-minded statement, although truth by definition is what? Narrow. Jesus says, you don't need to babble like the pagans. Well, how do the pagans pray? How do non-Christians pray in the first century? Well, they're rambling because they have to hit every single god and goddess because if they miss somebody, their wrath might come down on them. Jesus is saying, <laughs> there's only one god. And you don't need to worry about appeasing all these gods that the Romans worship because they don't exist. 
Jesus is claiming, <laughs> this, this is a, a nature, a claim to the nature of the Trinity. There is only one God. And I know as Americans, we love options. We love, uh, we love going into clothing stores and seeing 87 different ways to buy a pair of jeans. But mentally, <laughs> that, that doesn't help our brain. And Jesus knows this. And he tells, guys, those gods and goddesses that the Romans are praying to, they don't exist. They're probably um, really uh, demon-possessed spirits that unbeknownst to the Roman Empire that they're actually praying to. There's only one God. So take a deep breath, find a quiet place, and begin to communicate with your Heavenly Father openly and honestly. Now, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you think of God, what do you think about? Maybe you or a coworker or a family member, when they think about God, they think that God is distant. Uh, maybe you think that God is grumpy, just an old man waiting to zap people um, that, that are sort of you know, ethically moral, uh, in the morality out of line and God's going to just strike him dead. But Jesus teaches us right out of the gate, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, that prayer is a relational experience and not a transactional one. Prayer is not something that we do to sort of make a check off the checklist and we can move on throughout our day. Prayer is an intimate, growing relationship with our Heavenly Father. Pete Craig wrote this, the way we view God affects everything about everything. And T. Wright wrote in his book, The Lord and His Prayer, we want the living God. We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to be able to truly call him Father. In a sense, therefore, the first words of the Lord's Prayer represent the goal towards which we are working rather than the starting point from which we set out. Now, let's ask a question. What gives Jesus the right to tell these uh, disciples that when you pray, begin with two words, our Father. Well, let's look at Jesus' claim to divinity and his relationship to the Father. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me. Choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And Jesus says, when you pray, begin with the phrase, our Father. Now, we will say, uh, I worked really hard to purchase uh, our house with our money. That house belongs to me. I worked really hard to purchase my brand new car. It's amazing, right? I worked for it. It's our money. It's now our car. When Jesus says, our Father, we do not possess God. We do not own God. And we need to be very careful in our world today with the narrative of, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, and I don't really want to label my spiritual journey or call God a this or that. And, and Jesus says, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You don't own God. God owns us. God is possessive of us if we're true to the Greek language here. We did not choose God. Let's, let's, take, let's take a step back. We know you're amazing and your kids would never do anything wrong. We know that your family's awesome, right? But the Bible tells a different story. We don't want to choose God. <laughs> we want to kind of do our own thing. Don't believe me? Read the first three chapters of Romans. But here's the amazing message of the gospel. Even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our wondering, what does God do? He chooses us. He goes after us 
through his son, Jesus. Now, here's another narrow-minded yet true thing Jesus said. In John 14, 8 through 9, Philip, one of the disciples, asked Jesus a question. Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Now, I've been in ministry for about 15 years, and I get the sentiment, right? Especially when I was in student ministry, students would say, it's so hard to follow Jesus in high school. Yeah, it is a grind. I get it. I wish I could just see Jesus like physically in front of me, and that would make me a more committed follower. No, it wouldn't, because Jesus tells us why. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after, because Philip's seen Jesus, even after I've been among you for such a long time, Now, here's what Jesus says and what you have to figure out and decide in your heart if he's telling the truth. This next statement separates Jesus from all other historical religious figures. All other historical religious figures in their own religion will teach you about God. They'll show you the way to God, but they will not claim divinity except for Jesus. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You cannot get around that claim. Jesus thinks he's God. This is why Jesus can tell us with ultimate authority. And he's not like any other religious teacher, any other rabbi. When you pray, guys, begin with our Father. Check this out. In two words, you get the gospel. In Romans 8.15, Paul says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves to sin and fear so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. You cannot begin your prayer life with our Father apart from believing, receiving, and accepting the gospel. We get to say our Father, and the only reason why we get to say our Father is Christians is because we've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, brutally murdered in front of his mom and his, and his friends on a cross, and rose again three days later. And because we believe that, we've been adopted into the family of God, which is why we can begin our prayer life with our Father. When you say, our Father, aren't the scriptures amazing? I'm just on the first two words, right? And we're timed. I still got some time left. But, but there's so much gospel dripping out of those two words. When we say, our Father, we're reminded that Jesus chose us. When we would rather choose anything else that would bring uh, satisfaction to our lives, but would quickly go away. And we can say our Father, and it reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The only way that we're in God's family is because we believe in Christ the Son. I think we sang that earlier this morning. Church, praying our Father acknowledges a few things. Number one, we only know God because we know Jesus. You cannot You cannot know God apart from Jesus. This is what Christianity, if true, which I believe that it is, sets itself out uh, aside from all other world religions. All other world religions are cool with Jesus, but they think he's just another religious teacher. Jesus claims, you shouldn't care what other religions teach, you should actually do the research yourself. Jesus doesn't claim to be a nice guy that's a religious teacher. He claimed divinity, and we can only know God through knowing Jesus. 
Secondly, we only have intimacy with God because we are building intimacy with Jesus. Tom, like, Philip, I think it was Philip, I don't remember. Like, you, you, we've, been, we've been friends for like three years. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The kind of relationship we have, that's the kind of relationship I have with my Father. And that's the kind of relationship the Father wants to have with you. Thirdly, what is also true about the statement, our Father, is we only have a family of believers because the Son of God died and rose again. Right? And because the gospel is true, we can say our Father, and we are collectively gathered together today, and millions and billions of Christians around the world are all praying. Isn't that a comfort, you guys? That when you pray in the privacy of your own home or in your car, hopefully at a red light, like you are joining the world that is praying the exact same time as you are. There is comfort in praying our Father because it is representative of a diverse a diversity of believers of people from all over the world, nations, tribes, and tongues, are saying the same thing, claiming that Jesus is the only God. We can only know God through Jesus, and we are only adopted into God's family through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is such a fun word. It means holy. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, God's defining characteristic is his holiness. God is different in a good way. He's not like any other God that you may or may not have heard of. In fact, when Jesus says, pray like this, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, it is an invitation to realize that when you pray, you are in a cosmic battle against good and evil. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Right? Our battle is against what? Stuff we can see? No, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against things we can't see. The things that your coworkers talk about when their marriage is falling apart, but yet they can't, make the, they can't connect the dots because maybe they are, maybe they're not Christ followers. And that's our job to step in and say, hey, there's something, of course, we, you know, if we're invited to, right, and we have that relationship, hopefully, there's something that we can add to their lives. That it's not just that you fell out of love. It's that there is a God that loves you so much that you don't know anything about. And he chose you, even if you're not choosing him right now. Even if you're not choosing him right now in your marriage. Think about um, when people ask me, how do I develop a prayer life? I'm from Cincinnati, so I say steal other people's prayers. What do I mean by that? Read the book of Psalm. Like when I was trying to figure out my prayer life, especially in college when my parents were going through divorce and everything was upside down, I just stole David's prayers. And there are so many rich prayers. Grab a Bible, a particularly Psalm, book of the Bible, a pen and a, and a notebook or a journal or whatever you're into. You do it on your phone, that's fine. I'm, I'm a bit old school in that way. And whatever David is praying... Whether it's a psalm of anguish and despair, why don't you write that out? Why don't you reword that prayer that makes sense to you? In fact, here's a great prayer in Psalm chapter 8 that talks about the magnificence and holiness of God. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. There is not a square mile that God does not have sovereignty and dominion over. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. 
to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, part of prayer, church, is pondering. And I talked about this during our Christmas Eve service, and really it's a spiritual discipline that I'm stepping into, so I'm probably going to talk about it more. Part of our spiritual formation, when Mary found out that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, she pondered these things in her heart. Part of prayer is carving out enough time to ponder the things of God. Now check this out. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Why, God, would you ever choose us? We're terrible. But you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild, birds of the sky, fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. God, you have created this beautiful experience and reality called life, and then you give us dominion over it to rule it. Like Christians should care more than any other kind of person about the quality of earth because we're, we are stewards of it. Now, there's a little phrase in here that I never, to be honest with you, like just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I stopped growing, that I discovered this week. And it was really exciting. It's sort of sandwiched in the middle when uh, the writer says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. What could God do with fingers? <laughs> that phrase should give a head nod to the salvation work of the gospel from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. In Luke 11:20, 20, Jesus says this, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Exodus 8, 19, the magicians. I love when non-Christians like, get the gospel, right? They're like, well, maybe we should stop the plague. That's sort of where this verse is sandwiched in, right? The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, right? This, this reign and terror of these plagues, right? this, is the, this is the work of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord said. Exodus 31, 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave them the two tablets, Ten Commandments, of the covenant law, the tablets of stone, there it is again, inscribed by the finger of God. When you read the phrase, the finger of God, you are reading about the redemptive work of the gospel from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So why do you care? Here's why. When you read Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, when I'm pondering what you're doing, God, I consider the work of your fingers, I am considering how amazing your gospel is to me, that I get to be part of the redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation. And part of that plan, the finger of God is used for deliverance, getting God's people out under the rule and reign of Pharaoh, which is to say, if you parallel that with Romans, under the rule and reign of Satan and sin that so prevalently dominates our lives. When I consider, God, your salvation and what you've called me out of, it is too wonderful for me to even think about. This is why we say, holy is your name. When I consider the works of your fingers, I am marveling in the gospel of my salvation. 
when Jesus also talks about the holiness of God, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of God. In Isaiah 6.3, and this is sort of, we're going to end with a charge here. In Isaiah 6.3, the writer says, they were calling to one another, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now check this out. This is new to me. Ezekiel 36.23, I will show the holiness of my great name. Listen, church, this is, this is the most important thing you'll hear all week, or at least today, which has been profaned among the nations, right? Ever talk about your faith with your non-Christian friends or co-workers and they laugh at you? That's what he's talking about. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know, listen, church, how, what is the greatest defense for Christianity and the gospel? I'm going to tell you. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Whoa, whoa. What an amazing call to action. <clears throat> that one of the greatest defenses, and if you want to use the word arguments or cases for the validity of Christianity and the holiness of God, is not texting your non-Christian heathen co-workers all these you know, damnable verses. It is living a holy life in the midst of their presence. Jesus says this, be perfect, church as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we get that twisted because we don't understand the gospel. Is Jesus saying that I have to be perfect? I'm parenting a middle school kid. That's impossible. No, that's not what he's talking about. The phrase perfect means the end or the goal or the completion of something. When we pray, holy be your name, we are both asking God to make his name holy and we are pledging ourselves not to misuse God's name. There are two things that you can do with the holy name of God. We read it in scripture. You can A, affirm that by living a holy life, or B, you can profane the name of God by doing whatever you want in your life. Church, the big idea today is this. The Lord's prayer begins with gospel adoration for who God is and what he has done for us. When we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are acknowledging God we did not choose you. You chose us. We are your possession. And we live a holy life, not because we're self-righteous hypocrites, but that we want others to see through the way we live a holy God. Not to show off, but in the hopes that maybe a few would come to know Jesus and accept and receive the gospel. So may you... Church, this week when you begin to pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. May you be reminded that God is chasing after you, that God loves you, that he sent his son for you. But there is a task and a mission that we must live a holy life devoted to Christ so that those who are far from God may one day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul talks about in Romans, say, Abba, Father. You are my dad now, and I belong to a different family. And in this family, things are done differently. Man, what a great opening line for Jesus to tell us this is how we should pray.